Thanks for tuning in to the Diabetes Dish Podcast brought to you by DiabeticLifestyle.com. Here's your host, Maureen Connolly. Welcome to our webinar on the dangers of diabulimia. I'm Maureen Connolly, the editor of DiabeticLifestyle.com and host of the Diabetes Dish, a webinar and podcast series from Vertical Health. To learn more about Diabetic Lifestyle and our other premium online properties, including Practical Pain Management, Spine Universe, Endocrine Web, and PsychCentral.com, visit VerticalHealth.com. Each website has hundreds of high-quality, medically vetted articles created for both patients and medical professionals. And before we get started, a few quick notes. So the presentation is about 40 minutes. We'll follow with a 10-minute question and answer session. And you can type your questions in the box that you see in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. And if you can't stay with us for the whole webinar, don't worry. You'll get an email with a link to access the recording and the slides. So you couldn't ask for a better team to be addressing the very serious topic of diabulimia. Susan Weiner is a certified diabetes educator and a leading nutrition expert with a private nutrition counseling practice in Merrick, New York. She's also the recipient of the Diabetes Research Institute Foundation's 2016 Dare to Dream Award and the American Association of Diabetes Educators 2015 Educator of the Year. And also joining us is Betsy Conlin. Betsy was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes 14 years ago and suffered from diabulimia for three years before she got the treatment that saved her life. Thanks so much for being here, Susan and Betsy. Thank you so much, Maureen, and a very special thank you to Diabetic Lifestyle for hosting this important and potentially life-saving webinar on the subject of diabulimia. As we will discuss, diabulimia is a very serious and life-threatening condition that affects many women and men with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes can occur at any age, and that's very important for us to keep in mind throughout today's discussion. But type 1 diabetes is most commonly diagnosed early in life. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease in which insulin-producing beta cells of the pancreas are destroyed, so the body produces little or virtually no insulin. And the body needs the hormone insulin in order to break down sugars and starches into a very simple sugar called glucose. And glucose is what should be used for energy. Therefore, insulin is required from an outside source in order to get glucose into the bloodstream, from the bloodstream into the body's cells. So people who have type 1 diabetes take insulin from an outside source, as I said, from either multiple daily injections or through an insulin pump to help properly manage their type 1 diabetes. And of course, there is a whole host of other things that need to be done throughout the day when you have type 1 diabetes, including paying attention to your diet and exercise plans in order to help influence your blood sugar levels. So if you have type 1 diabetes, or you love someone who does, you already know what a challenge it is to manage your diabetes 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, day in and day out. It's a challenge. Of that, there is no doubt. So what happens when you have type 1 diabetes and you either withhold or restrict taking your insulin? 
there can be a lot of consequences of withholding your insulin and one of the worst consequences is the possibility of developing DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis. DKA is a life-threatening condition that develops when the cells in your body are unable to get sugar or glucose, which they need for energy because there is not enough insulin. So when sugar can't get into your cells, it stays in your blood. And then your body can't use the glucose, so it begins to break down fat and muscle for energy. When this happens, ketones are produced, enter your bloodstream, and it causes a chemical imbalance called diabetic ketoacidosis. You're going to feel hot, your skin will be dry, your vision gets very blurry. Of course, you're very thirsty, you feel like you want to drink an ocean, and you're urinating a lot. You're very drowsy, and it can lead to confusion, coma, and even death. So there is a lot of complications that are associated with not taking insulin or not taking insulin properly. In my office, I work with a lot of people who have type 1 diabetes. And while people understand the importance of insulin and that insulin is their lifeline, I am constantly getting questions from patients, who, people with diabetes, who are concerned about taking insulin and the result of gaining weight from taking insulin. So let's just clear up a few points before we speak to Betsy during today's discussion. If you are not taking insulin and you have type 1 diabetes or you're withholding your insulin, you may lose weight because you're not properly able to convert the food you're eating into energy. So the food winds up as excess glucose circulating in your blood, leading to high blood sugar. Ultimately, the body can't use all that extra glucose circulating in the blood, so it's eliminated through your urine when your blood sugar runs high and you urinate a lot to get rid of that urine, you're, you get dehydrated because you're trying to clear all that glucose from your body. So you think that you lost weight, but what you're really losing is a lot of water. So when you start to retake insulin to correct the problem and to get the blood sugar under better control, you start initially over-retaining fluids, which helps to make up for the dehydration, but it makes you think that you've put on a rapid amount of weight rather quickly. Additionally, when your blood sugar level is very high, you're hungry all the time because the food that you're eating was not able to get into your cells to nourish your cells due to the lack of insulin. So once you start taking insulin and you feel better, you don't feel lousy anymore, you need to reevaluate your nutrition plan because you may have been eating a lot more when your blood sugars were running high. Betsy, did you ever think that the insulin that you were taking was causing you to gain weight? Absolutely. Um, and I know that sounds so absurd, but I had gotten into such a bad habit with my eating and my withholding of insulin that I honestly feared taking my insulin. I thought it was my worst enemy, and I know now that's completely untrue. Right. And that will lead us into really the crux of today's story. I would love for you to share with everybody attending today, now that we just reviewed the importance and lifeline of insulin with somebody who has type 
type 1 diabetes, a little bit about your story of when you were diagnosed and some of what you went through. Yeah, um, so I'm from a really small little town in Missouri, um, so growing up was super charm childhood. Um, I did dance lessons, and I participated in all kinds of different athletic activities, and I had um, all kinds of opportunities to do anything that I wanted with a small friend group. Um, I participated on dance teams, and I was the captain of the volleyball team. I was homecoming queen. Um, some of my friends called me Splenda um, in high school. Um, and so when I was 12 years old is when I was diagnosed with my type 1 diabetes. Um, and I remember when I was first in the hospital, um, just thinking to myself, how did this happen? You know, kind of in denial. I don't know that I had ever truly accepted that I was um, a type 1 diabetic. And then as I slowly learned how to take care of myself and do my own injections with the loving and kindness, you know, the help of my parents, um, I noticed that I had a preference of taking my Lantus shots, my longer lasting insulin instead of the fast acting. Um, I preferred to take it on the right side um, of my leg because it was just easier to reach around and grab. And I noticed over the months and years that I had been doing that, that that part of my leg looked a little bit bigger than the other side. So I think I started to develop um, some, I, I knew that I looked different and I was different from my peers. And I think mm -hmm. that's where some of my issues began. You felt some of the fat deposits on that side of the leg where you were injecting the insulin. Yes. Yeah, that actually makes sense, and that can lead definitely to some body image issues. So here you are, we're looking at some pictures of you as a cheerleader, as a homecoming queen, and as an athlete. And we move on to a little bit more of your story. What changed when you left your small town and you went away to college? Can you share with us when some of these issues started to become more real with you and what happened during your college years? Yeah, so I went on to college and I knew um, from a young age, I love watching the news and I wanted to be um, a journalist. And so I went to college for broadcast communication and um, I worked at the local radio station and my school, my university's television station, and um, I really enjoyed doing all those things. And it was the night of my 21st birthday, um, and I've been wearing an insulin pump since I was 14. Um, and that night I decided I wanted to wear a particular outfit, and those of us who have pumps know that they can be sometimes bulky, and I didn't want to tuck it in my pocket and have to mess with the tubing hanging out or any of those kind of problems, so I just thought, really offhandedly, I'm just going to take my pump off for the night. I'm not planning on eating anything super substantial, so I'll be okay. So I took my pump off for the night. I, you know, enjoyed the time with my friends, slept in a little bit the next day, and then when I weighed myself, I noticed that I had lost a couple pounds, and I thought to myself, what was the only thing that I had done different that night? And then it clicked in my head, you weren't wearing your insulin pump. You didn't have that insulin during that small period of time, and so that kind of mentality started circulating in my mind. Okay, if I don't take my insulin, I can lose a little bit of weight. I look, I slimmed down a little bit. And mm -hmm. so I looked at my calendar and said, okay, what are my next, I have this event or I have this party that I want to go to and I really want to wear this dress because it'll look awesome, if, you know. And so if I don't wear my pump the whole day before, 
maybe I could lose three or four pounds and look extra slim. And then it started um, digressing from there how many – it was uh, a very fine line of DKA that I was skirting. How could I keep presenting myself at these events without um, totally throwing myself into DKA? And you actually have a picture on the slide that I'm looking at now, one where you're broadcasting into a microphone and one where you're in a hospital bed. And I have to tell you how brave you are to share these images with everybody who's participating and attending today's discussion. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened in that picture? Yeah, so, um, and I apologize, I'm still emotional about this. Um, it was. October of my senior year of college and um, all of my hair started to fall out and I didn't really tie together that it was my insulin emission that was causing that to happen. I just kept thinking, why is this happening to me? Because I'm going to wait and go into broadcasting and who wants to see a bald reporter on TV? And then that picture of me in the hospital bed was the day after my birthday. Um, my best friend in college found me passed out on the floor in my bedroom and took me to the emergency room and I was admitted into the ICU in severe DKA and my doctor told um, my mom that if she wouldn't have found me in a couple more hours I would have been dead so um, that's the picture of me in that I guess is my my breaking point of when I was almost in a coma I had just woken up I didn't know where I was from inside um, the hospital Right, right. And then that picture on the far right um, is after I had graduated, and those are all the bald spots and the thinness of my hair. What is the secret here? What was the whole secret that you were holding inside? Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, so I guess the secret for me was um, I had always, like I had said earlier, I've always been really active and involved in so many different things um, that I had found a way to look slim or, you know, be skinny, like what's really popular without having to put in all the early mornings of going running or all the cardio in the afternoons after class or yoga on Saturdays. You know, I had finally figured out um, almost in my own mind this backdoor secret way that I could lose weight um, and obviously it does not end well and it's not something that's sustainable because from the the night of my 21st birthday um, to the day after my 22nd birthday a year just a year of withholding insulin um, put me in the hospital and almost almost dead I had almost accidentally killed myself because I was withholding my insulin and if it happened to you, as you and I discussed it earlier, it, it could happen to right. anyone. Right, it because it happened to my, anyone. Right, my A1Cs um, were always really great. I tried my hardest, and, and um, in college, I just kind of put it on the back burner, and I didn't care. I cared more about looking good and trying to um, fit that stereotypical mold that so many young women um, have in their minds. I didn't care about my own health. I only cared about what I looked like. So 
this is the definition of an eating disorder, what you're describing, Betsy. This is diabulimia. And diabulimia is a life-threatening condition that is specific to people with type 1 diabetes. It's when a person withholds insulin in order to lose weight. And insulin withholding or insulin restriction is often accompanied by other eating disorder behaviors, such as binge eating or purging or using laxatives. And it's important to point out in this discussion that it is still not listed in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and that's the standard classification of mental disorders manual used by mental health professionals in the United States. So it's still not recognized in this manual, but I think we're getting closer to have it as a recognized, complex eating disorder that requires medical attention. And it does have a name, and I also want to put in um, amongst all the different things that do di that do define diabulimia, there is a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, as Betsy was describing, involved in this diagnosis because it's so complex, and you know that insulin is your lifeline, but it's a lot more complicated than just moving forward and taking your insulin. Betsy, can you talk to us about some of the things that triggered you into the diabulimia disorder and how we can kind of recognize some of those problems? Um, well, as many of you who are familiar with type 1 diabetes know, our whole world revolves around numbers. What was my blood sugar this morning? Um, how many carbs did I just eat in that meal? What's my blood sugar now? How many, you know, everything in our world revolves around a good or a bad number. And I know that's um, something we want to stray away from, but I had internalized my high blood sugar, you know, anything above 240 um, as bad. And so when I saw a number that was high, I would, I immediately saw that and said, you're, that's a bad number. I'm a bad diabetic or I'm a bad person. And so just that negative self-talk that I had um, all of those years and you don't really pay attention to it. It's like, oh, I'm low, I need to eat. Oh, I'm high. I need to take something, you know, take more insulin. But all of those numbers just wore away at me to the point where um, the only thing that I did have control over at that point was my eating and, my, and taking my insulin. And so by, and I got, um, as I was losing weight, or as Susan had described, I thought I was losing weight, but I really was just losing all my fluid. People were telling me, you look so great. What are you doing? And it kind of fueled, um, fueled this addiction that I had grown of not understanding how my insulin helped my body. And I thought by withholding it, I was making myself look better when really I was hurting myself immensely. Very important point that you broke up about that you brought up about choosing not to check your blood sugar or choosing not to check your blood sugar as often. It's very overwhelming it, and it is something that you do feel is under your control because you're not actively checking your blood sugar. Your broken pancreas is not under your control. So this is something that 
does develop because diabetes is with you all day long. So that's a, a very right. good point, as is the point of feeling the pressure to impress everyone mm -hmm. around you. And we'll get back to the dating in a minute. I just wanted to move on to the next slide. So there are a number of contributing factors that we may see possibly around the diagnosis of diabetes bulimia, including genetics, we don't know if there are some neurochemical imbalances that might influence somebody developing diabulimia when another person may not. It's complicated, but the idea of diabetes-related depression is really quite fascinating when it comes to diabulimia and anxiety and guilt and low self-esteem. So Betsy, did any of those factors affect you during the time that you were in the throes of diabulimia? Absolutely. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me was low self-esteem, and that might come as a surprise, um, at least even to myself, because I, I was so involved, and I was um, on camera all the time at school, and I'm, you know, active in a lot of different social groups, but I felt so terrible about myself. Um, I couldn't even when I was struggling with my diabetes, I couldn't even hang a mirror on the wall. I couldn't stand to even look at myself um, because I hated the person that I was. I liked what I saw on the outside physically, but I hated how I felt and I hated the person that I had become and that grew into a depression as well as I watched my hair fall out and all of my dreams of wanting to, you know, go be a network anchor somewhere. My little small town heart wanted that so bad and I just watched all of that fade away as I couldn't break this cycle of withholding my insulin. Did that affect your relationship and your dating relationship or your relationship with friends? Yeah, it did. Um, I had I was dating this guy in college, and the day I came home from the hospital, he broke up with me because he told me that it wasn't fair if we were going to get married that he didn't want to come home and find me dead one day. And I carried that for years and it broke my heart. I bet it did. I bet it did. Yeah. And I know that you're married I now don't and him. Well, well, it's it's a very complicated situation, but I also want right. to say and we'll come back to that also that you are married now and have a beautiful daughter. So that's that's all good. Yes. That's all good. You felt alone, and I think it's important to point out to everybody listening today that people who have type 1 diabetes are at a higher risk for developing an eating disorder because of some of the issues that Betsy brought up a few minutes ago. If you're constantly checking your blood sugar and you're counting your carbohydrates and you have to monitor what you're eating and exercise and you want to influence your blood sugar to keep it in a target rate range so that you do feel better and prevent long-term complications with diabetes then it's one thing to treat an eating disorder but your diabetes isn't going to go away when you do resolve some of those issues or you're in the recovery of some of those issues so don't feel alone women with type one diabetes are much more likely to develop an eating disorder than their non-diabetic peers. Betsy, were you aware of this when you were going through it? Um, no, and kind of back to the beginning of my story, I am from a really small 
little farm town. And so I didn't even know another person with type one diabetes. I never saw another insulin pump on anyone else's hip. Um, and so I kind of monopolized on that in my small town. I did become Splenda. I was the little sweet diabetic girl. Um, and so I did feel really alone and it wasn't until I was in college and I was talking on the phone with one of my friends who was at medical school and I was telling him about not taking my insulin, you know, just very offhandedly speaking to him about it. And he said, do you know that's called diabulimia? We studied about that. And I said, what? There's a name for what I'm doing? I honestly, truly thought I was the only person who'd ever figured that out. Yes, and, and you are clearly not alone. So how does somebody know if they are at risk for developing diabulimia? Um, when I speak to colleagues of mine, registered dietitians, nutritionists, and CDEs, I make it very clear that we all work with people who have diabetes, CDEs, but if you aren't familiar with people who have eating disorders, you really need to learn a little bit more about it and be in the non-judgment zone because one of the questions we ask is that when you have eating disorders, do you follow rules about food? Well, if you have type 1 diabetes, you have been taught or you may have educated yourself on different things you should eat. Um, and Betsy, can you talk a little bit about binging or if you feel that you couldn't stop binging? A lot of people who do go through diabetes do binge on high carbohydrate and sugary foods. Did that ever happen to you and did you feel guilty when you did go through that? Yeah, it did. Um, so when I had first, I was living um, in a house with three other girls and um, they were all really tall and really thin, and so I already felt um, kind of judged by them anyway, and so I, after I would get off work, I would go um, just walk into the grocery store, and I would, and this is even embarrassing to say now, but I would walk straight into the bakery, and I wouldn't even care. I would just grab something and go back out to my car and eat it and just cry, but I knew that if I ate that quickly enough that my blood sugar would get really high and I wouldn't feel any of um I wouldn't feel any of the things that I was feeling. It's almost so I, numbing. Yeah. yeah. And I I lived my life like that for a year. I was just a zombie. I didn't have any feelings and numbing it with my high blood sugar. You're right. I You're right. I'm sorry. No, not at all, and we appreciate you sharing this. It's very brave of you to do so. And stopping at the bakery on the way home from class or on the way home from work is giving a lot of time and thought to food. And again, it's complicated because people with type 1 diabetes do give a lot of time and thought to, to food in general. So it's a very complicated disorder. If you have a loved one, um, who has type 1 diabetes and you think that they might be going through an eating disorder like diabulimia, look for some of these signs. If they're changing, if they're changing some of their eating behaviors, kind of out of the blue, they no longer want to dine out at a restaurant when you may have done that more often in the past, or they don't want to eat with you or with the family. And as Betsy was just saying, if 
you might find out that they're eating secretly or in secrecy and you find empty wrappers or empty empty containers in the garbage something might be going on if there are any noticeable changes in how they're eating, where they're eating, or the person with type 1 diabetes is eating a lot of junk food or foods that are high in sugar, or there's new secrecy around their diabetes management, as Betsy brought up before, not checking blood sugar as often, new concerns with body image, body shape, or weight, obsessed obsessive weighing yourself on the scale is an issue. Um, another sign of an eating disorder can be excessively exercising um, or panic attacks if you can't exercise. That's commonplace too. And I know Betsy that you um, were an athlete and you still are. Did that ever happen to you that you felt that if you couldn't exercise then that led to some panic? Yeah, and it made me feel like I wasn't um, I wasn't a good enough person for myself at my own standard um, because I would go work out before I went to work or anything like that. And so by not being able to keep up my appearances at the gym, I felt like people would start catching on to what I was doing. And it had gotten to the point where I couldn't even get out of bed and walk to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night without falling down or go up walk up the stairs to go get a drink and how was I supposed to go run on a treadmill? I mean, I had really gone way too far with this. And of course, moodiness and depression, you just can't feel good when you're not taking your lifeline of insulin and you just don't feel good about, you don't feel good physically and you obviously don't feel good emotionally. So these are just some signs and symptoms that you might feel in a loved one who does who is going through this very debilitating process. So Betsy, can you please walk us through how you started to get help? What was the breaking point and where did you reach out to? Um so my breaking point, I guess, um I was in my car and I was just driving around um, really upset and I didn't know where to go and I think I had tried calling um, either my mom or one of my friends and no one was answering and so I just really felt um, super alone in a moment and so I pulled out my phone and I just started googling um, and something popped up and it was the We Are Diabetes website and I clicked on it and I said, no way, <laughs> there, there's a support group for this, like there are other people out there and so I saw that they had um, an email and so I sent an email with my subject line being like, emergency, please help me and um, Asha Brown actually called me and I sat in my car and I cried and I talked with her for almost three hours and um, she let me know that it was going to be okay and um, she immediately jumped on the phone and started finding places for me to go where I could get help and um, it was through her help and the help of We Are Diabetes that I, I started my recovery process and I'm forever grateful for that. So let's look at some aspects of diabulimia recovery. Uh, it takes bravery on the part of the person person who is going through this. Betsy, that took a lot of bravery for you to make that phone call. So really big applause to you for doing this. 
and it does take a team to help in this recovery process. Your doctor or your healthcare provider, endocrinologist, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, diabetes educator, your nurse, um, all of which hopefully will have eating disorder training and background in eating disorders, working with a psychologist, a mental health worker, and a social worker is also very helpful in a non-judgment zone, making sure that the goals that are set in this treatment process are small, very big goals do not work, just small goals like starting to check your blood sugar in the more, you know, a couple of times a day, just getting started with that again, taking your insulin again. It doesn't have to be perfect, it just has to be small incremental goals to get on the on the bandwagon of getting better with this from your entire team. And Betsy, did you have any problems um, when this was going on? Did any of your complications get any worse? before it got better as you were going through the diabulimia recovery process? Um, for me, the biggest thing was my hair loss. Um, I have lost like three-fourths of my hair. I have really thick hair, so that was the most traumatic thing for me. But um, I went to the University of Utah, um, their psychiatric unit, and I started going to um, cognitive behavioral therapy once a week. And with my... Um, doctor, we just started, like you said, really small. It was take your insulin pump out of the box and just set it somewhere where you're going to see it every day. Um, touch your blood sugar meter every day. Like just touch it, get it in part, you know, just make it a part of your life again. And I thought, that sounds so dumb. Why can't I even hold it without crying? Like I had so much anxiety about even wearing my insulin pump and taking my insulin again. And one of my other problems I had was um, when I did start slowly taking my insulin again, I immediately gained all of the weight back that I thought I had lost plus some. So struggling with um, my body image again, but knowing you're only going to be this way for a small little bit until your body thinks, okay, you're not starving anymore. You're going to be, you know, just being okay with not being okay was the biggest part of my recovery and knowing that it would be better just a day at a time. So you actually went through that process when you rehydrated, you rehydrated, the scale went up, but you you worked with your team, you worked with We Are Diabetes and, and your entire healthcare team at University of Utah, which thank goodness for that, and also um, NEDA, can you tell us a little bit about that association? The National tell yeah. us what that Association stands for and if that how that helped you. Yeah, the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, I reached out to them as well, and they have a lot of excellent resources on their website um, and on their Twitter feed. They're always posting really great things, and so just seeing that, um, they were another big staple of my recovery story too. And um, the Dealing with Diabetes Burnout by Ginger um, Vieira. That book. <laughs> every problem a diabetic has ever had you read it you're like yes I hate it when I catch my insulin tubing on a doorknob and it rips out like she gets me and that reading that and knowing that there were there were other people out there who were just as frustrated as me but kept their chins up the same way that I tried my best to it was really refreshing and it helped me stay on my journey to recovery 
And I also agree that Ginger's book, Dealing with Diabetes Burnout, is a must-have for anybody who has had diabetes. Even if you're newly diagnosed or if you've had it for a long time, it really does help people during the recovery process. So unlike a typical eating disorder, not that dealing with a typical eating disorder is easy, but unlike a typical eating disorder, your type 1 diabetes doesn't go away while you're in recovery of your eating disorder. So you still have to eat well, count your carbohydrates, exercise, manage your stress, and all those other things that go along with type 1 diabetes management on a daily basis. You still have diabulimia. Betsy, what do you mean by becoming abnormal again? I find that a very interesting term. Um, so for me, when I was um, in the depth of this eating disorder, I just wanted a little bit of normalcy that I saw everybody else around me having. They didn't have to worry about checking their blood sugar or do they have an extra snack on them in case they go low or being able to go and do whatever they wanted without constantly worrying um, about what their blood sugar was going to be. So by becoming abnormal means making and establishing those habits again of I'm going to wake up and check my blood sugar first thing in the morning so I know where I'm starting for the day and I'm going to set the tone for taking control of my own um, diabetes from, you know, even from the very first thing that morning. Um, wearing your insulin pump because not everybody wears one or a CGM or going to all the doctor appointments that most normal, quote, quote, people don't have to go to. And I find it so empowering talking about how wonderful any part of your body is because you're not defined by your type 1 diabetes or by diabulimia or anything else that might be going on but it still is a part of you so how did you find happiness again with your body how did you learn to love that part of you again um, so by meeting with my doctor um, once a week and learning to break my negative thought patterns and learning to love myself again honestly is what the root of my problem was just to quit hating myself for the things that I couldn't do and start really looking closely at loving the things that I was able to do like I really love my eyelashes so I'm gonna get great mascara and really you know love that part about myself so just learning how to deal with my diabetes and all the other things that I have that make me so special and great. That's such great advice. That's such great advice for everybody. As providers, knowing that diabulimia recovery is very challenging, we have to acknowledge that it is a dual disorder, type 1 diabetes as well as an eating disorder, and really look at it as something that we have to be very non-judgmental with, taking those small steps as, as Betsy did describe. And Betsy, can you tell us a little bit about this picture that we have to thank Asha Brown for giving us for the presentation today? Yes, and thank you, Asha, for that picture. Um, but I see her post that from time to time, and really that's kind of what I thought too. My recovery, I'm going to you know, go to each of these appointments I'm going to start taking my blood sugar again and slowly but surely I'm going to get back to my what my body was before I made myself sick and everything's going to be okay but really and so that's the straight line you're just going to get better get better get better but really 
you're going to start getting better and then you're going to have a small relapse and you're going to not want to take your insulin and you're going to cry and you're not going to want to answer the phone and you might get that doctor's appointment because you just feel so guilty about what you've been doing and the shame that comes along with all of that. But then slowly you're going to climb the next stair and you're going to start on the path again and you'll keep dropping on and off and take a left instead of taking the right hand turn. But eventually you're going to make it to the end. And that's what I love most about that picture because that is the reality of it. It's not just a step-by-step process. It's a minute-by-minute process. Almost. And I and I have to remind everybody listening today of Betsy. You're 25. You're 25 years old, yeah. right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You are wise beyond your years with the advice that you're sharing with everybody today. Very very wise advice that you're and you're helping so many people with your story. I think it's important in the recovery process to also learn to eat a little bit more mindfully, and this will help. Um, especially when you do have type 1 diabetes, it is challenging to do this, but it does help a lot in the process. So one point that I want to make on this slide, just in the interest in time, if you are experiencing a low blood sugar, you do need to eat, and that's okay to bring up your blood sugar, but it's okay to feel the emotion about not being happy about doing it or being a little bit angry about it. Betsy, can you comment on that point as well, eating with a low blood sugar, even if you really don't want to? Yeah, and something that I'm sure a lot of us with type 1 diabetes have experienced ourselves is when you do feel that pang of low blood sugar, you want to go run to the fridge and eat everything and continue eating everything until you feel better, until you don't feel low anymore. And so the biggest part for me after all the binging and all the not being able to tell what my blood sugar was, was taking my blood sugar, establishing that it was low, and going and eating my 15 to 20 grams of carbohydrates, and then just holding my hands together and just sitting and waiting 15 minutes and testing again. And training myself to do that was really hard because, like I said, everyone just wants to eat until they feel better, and it's just eat enough that will make you feel better. So it's a process. Great point. It is a process. And also to remind everybody, that's individually what Betsy did, and everyone has their own tools and strategies. If you do need help, let people help you. It's very difficult to regulate your blood sugar and to maintain good eating habits, especially on top of trying to recover from an eating disorder. And we do have... um, some closing thoughts that we want to make sure to cover before we get into the question and answer section. But Betsy, I want you to really talk about not fearing the gear. So important. (laughs) Let technology help you. Can you say a few words about this, please? Yeah, for sure. Um, So the biggest thing for me after um, coming out the other side, I'm happy to say um, with this eating disorder was being able to wear my insulin pump again and not feel the anxiety of everyone looking at me and knowing instantaneously that I was a type 1 diabetic because of my of my pump on my hip. Um, and obviously with an insulin pump, I regained much tighter control um, and my A1Cs came down significantly as well. And then um, even during my pregnancy, I was able to wear a continuous glucose monitor. And so with the help of my insulin pump and my CGM, my um, A1Cs during my entire pregnancy were between 5.1 and 5.4, which I never even 
thought was possible because in high school I never had those numbers and I thought surely there's no way I could do it when my hormones are absolutely bonkers but I did it and so I don't fear my gear anymore because they're my best friends and it took a long time to get to that point but I'm so glad I did. And can we just finish up with you telling us um, how long you've been married and how old your baby daughter is now? <laughs> yeah, so um, my husband and I, um, we met right at the end of um, my therapy that I was going through, but he is so sweet and helped me through everything and always make sure that I have gummy snacks in my diaper bag and it's super, super sweet. And we've been married for um, over a year now and my daughter is just about to turn three months um, this coming weekend. So <laughs> we're really happy. That is wonderful. Congratulations. And I want to give a, before we move into the next phase, I want to thank everybody today for attending this webinar. And I, and I, I want to especially say a big shout out to Betsy because sharing your story is going to help so many people who think that they're alone in the process. And Maureen, are there any questions that Betsy and I can answer? Actually, yeah, we have uh, our first questions for Betsy, and one of the participants asked, was it difficult for you to gain the weight needed uh, during your pregnancy and to eat properly while you were pregnant? Uh, absolutely, and um, I talked with Susan about this. Um, my body image issues, it's never something that, for me, I don't think personally will ever go away. I'm always looking in the mirror and critiquing myself, and it's just the kind of person that I am. So. Um, that was definitely a huge hurdle for me during my pregnancy, but um, with the help of my husband and the support of my family, and that's something so important, you do need to have support teams built in. Um, I knew with their love and support, I was going to be able to um, bring my baby to full term without any kind of complication, and I was able to do that, um, but it was something always in the back of my mind, and I, I knew for her sake, my daughter's sake, that I needed to do that, and so it was more... Um, a selfless thing, I guess, but it wasn't for me, it was all for her. That's wonderful. And we have a question for Susan. Um, what can you do if your healthcare team isn't familiar with diabulimia or eating disorders related to type 1 diabetes? You need to find people who are familiar with type 1 diabetes and with an eating disorder, and there are people out there that can help you. We have a resource slide on today's presentation for all attendees and participants. Here we are, and a whole list of resources here. I want to also give a big shout out and thank you to Diabulimia Helpline, who gave us a tremendous amount of resources for today's presentation. They've been absolutely fantastic with their resources. Um, Asha Brown and We Are Diabetes, which is an unbelievable resource, and Asha, as Betsy said, did, did help to save her life. The National Eating Disorder Association, you may feel free to contact me. I would love to hear from you. Diabetics with Eating Disorder and the Behavioral Diabetes Institute. So if you contact a number of these places, they can set you on the right path to finding the right providers to work with you to help to um, deal with this challenging disorders. Okay, and one uh, we have time for one more question, and this is for Betsy. How do you stay motivated day in and day out to take care of yourself with type 1 diabetes? Now, um, something that really motivates me is my, is my darling little family. Um, I want to be around 
for them. And I don't want um, any of these issues that I've had in the past to creep back into my life and steal time away from these people that I love so much. So, um, And having a really great endocrinologist, I finally found someone that I click with. So that is another huge motivator for me. Really loving the team that I have set up for myself is my biggest motivator right now. That's excellent. Well, Susan, I want to thank you so much for this highly informative presentation today. And Betsy, we thank you for your courage sharing the details of your story so that you can help others with diabulimia. Um, and for everybody uh, listening and watching, we hope to see you next month when certified diabetes expert Amy Hess-Fischel is going to present on the ABCs of better A1Cs. Um, she'll discuss how everything from stress to illness, diet and exercise impact your A1C. So you'll, you'll get a bunch of great tips from a pro on how to better manage um, your A1C. And you can go to diabeticlifestyle.com and click on Live Well to register. And finally, thanks to all of you who took the time to be with us today. We hope to see you next month. Take care. <laughs>